Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. My guest today is Daryl West. He's the Vice President and Director of Governance Studies at Brookings and also the Founding Director of the Center for Technology Innovation and the Douglas Dillon Chair. After the interview, stay tuned to hear John Hudak's regular feature on what Congress is up to. Welcome to the program, Daryl. Thank you, Fred. Uh, you're the first research program vice president I've been able to have on the podcast, uh, so thank you. Uh, and it's quite fitting since it was in your department that I started my career at Brookings many, many, many years ago. Great. That must have been before my time. It was quite a bit before your time. Uh, but when I started in governance studies, I know you were at Brown University. You were on the faculty there for 25 years. You came to Brookings a little over six years ago. What was it like to make the move to a think tank? It's been a lot of fun. What I really love about Brookings is the sense of immediacy. I mean, every day there are amazing people who walk through our front doors. So just the opportunity to meet government officials, business people, people from academia and reporters has really been a lot of fun. And it really gives you a platform to talk about important issues. Well, one of those is billionaires. Let's talk about billionaires. You're the author of a brand new book from the Brookings Institution Press. It's called Billionaires, Reflections on the Upper Crust. What gave you the idea to write a book about billionaires? I was curious about billionaires because between my time at Brown and my time at Brookings, I had encounters with maybe 20 different billionaires. And when you think about what they're doing, there are some billionaires who are doing amazing things like Bill and Melinda Gates are close to eradicating polio, which is a remarkable achievement. But then on the other hand, we've seen in recent elections, a number of billionaires spend tens or sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars trying to influence the election process. So we see these individuals attempting to convert economic power into political power. So I wanted to know who are these people? how they make their money, what are they doing with it, and how should the rest of us think about this new style political activism? And we'll talk a, a lot about that here in a minute. But at the beginning of your book, you, you include a description of your childhood. And you wrote that, I was born on a dairy farm and grew up poor. Can you talk about that a little and why you included that in your book? It was really the contrast between the relative poverty of my youth and the privilege that I've experienced during my adulthood that made me think about the role that super wealthy people play in American politics as well as in American society. So as you mentioned, I grew up on a dairy farm. My family didn't have a lot of money. When my parents first moved to the house, it didn't have running water, didn't have an indoor bathroom. My mother used to joke that the barn got running water before the house did because the cows were so important to our dairy operation. But in just kind of thinking about the opportunities that I've had, it's very important for me that people still have a good sense of opportunity. And one of the things I worry about is our society has become so focused on wealth and wealthy people are now very involved in the political process that I worry whether people are still going to have the opportunities that I had when I was growing up. And you also tell an anecdote toward the end of the book about contracting rheumatic fever as a child and, and how in your recovery uh, and what happened next. Can you talk a little bit about why you included that in the book? So I think it, it, it bears on one of the larger themes that you're making. 
I include that story in the book because it is quite relevant to the story about opportunity and inequality that a lot of people are talking about in America these days. I was 11 years old, and I remember even to this day, it was a Sunday morning, I woke up, and my joints were just really painful, like I could barely get out of bed. So my parents took me to the doctor, and I got this diagnosis that I had rheumatic fever, which is basically an infectious disease that develops out of strep throat. But it can be very damaging to your heart. It can affect the valves uh, there. But fortunately, I was able to get good medical care. Uh, even though my parents did not have health insurance, I recovered. I went on to a life as an academic and now uh, being in D.C. And I think it just shows that relatively small investments in healthcare and in education can really pay off. And it's part of the book's message that we need to think about opportunity. We need to think about how people from working class backgrounds can still have opportunities to do well in American society. The book has a lot of great data on the billionaire class, the people who are billionaires, uh, their gender, their race, where they live around the world and in the United States. You break it all down. Uh, but just looking at the top level, how many billionaires are there in the world and how many are in the United States? According to Forbes magazine, which has been tracking billionaires for more than 30 years now, there are 1,645 billionaires globally, of whom about one-third, 492, live in the United States. Uh, about 90% of them are male, 65% are white. The average age is about 63. So they're really not like you and me. Uh, they not only have much uh, greater wealth than we do, but they're not representative on basic demographic characteristics. And they control an unbelievable amount of wealth globally, don't they? Uh, globally, billionaires control about $6.4 trillion. Uh, the people who live in the United States have more than $2 trillion, and their money is appreciating at a very rapid rate. You know, as the stock market has recovered, you know, some of these individuals are ha now having annual returns of 10, 15, or 20% a year. So let's get into some of the observations and arguments you make in the book. I'm going to uh, read a quote that I think kind of sets the stage. It is possible to admire individual billionaires, but also fear their overall influence on elections, governance, and public policy. Can you summarize why those points are so? I mean, I've had a number of encounters with billionaires, and you know, we have billionaires who serve on the uh, Brookings board. And the ones who I personally uh, met have a lot of really positive traits uh, in the sense that they're very creative, they're forward-looking, uh, they've been visionary in introducing new business uh, practices, so they've really been transformative in terms of their impact. But I suggest that when you think about billionaires as a class, even though there are a number of individuals who've done great things for the world, they're doing lots of important philanthropy, that when you think about the political aspects of great wealth, that our country, and indeed the world, faces some risk because there's so much money that is concentrated in a small number of people. If they're just using wealth for their own purposes, that's fine. But when they start to enter into the political process, that has consequences for the rest of us. And so we need to to think about how that operates. Well, what are those consequences? I mean, aren't they just, in, in some sense, let's focus on the American billionaires, aren't they just people too and they vote and they're citizens? And I mean, is it possible that, that their political views you know, are representative of the rest of us? If their views were completely representative of the rest of us, we 
wouldn't be having this conversation, meaning we wouldn't worry about it. But in fact, the research suggests uh, that ultra-wealthy individuals are much more conservative than the American public at large. They don't want taxes on the wealthy to be increased, perhaps understandably so, given their own uh, situations. But they also are less likely to favor policies that promote educational opportunity and helping uh, people get the health care that they need. And so the thing that I uh, worry about is in this particular era, you have a combination of great income concentration of wealth. Uh, you have greater political activism than we have seen in uh, past uh, decades. And a lot of this political activity is now taking place in secret. In a lot of ways, we have returned to the pre-Watergate era a big money and great secrecy. And that's a combination that always has been quite toxic for democratic political systems. And the billionaires, uh, let's say there's some who are more conservative than, than others as you look at them, do they not cancel each other out in terms of their political activism? Or do they tend, as you were saying, kind of all support certain kind of policies that the rest of Americans are more divided on? If we had a perfect distribution of liberal, moderate, conservative, and libertarian billionaires, it wouldn't be so much of a problem. But in reality, for example, if you look at the 2012 election, more than two-thirds of the large money that went into the super PACs came on the Republican side. So the money, at least in recent years, has been tilted much more in favor of conservatives and Republicans. We saw in 2012 the interesting spectacle of a handful of individuals spending hundreds of millions of dollars attempting to defeat President Obama. So when you see that type of very substantial effort, that kind of opened my eyes and it made me wonder, you know, what is going on with this uh, new type of political activism? Well, in the chapter that you have in your book, Can Rich Dudes Buy an Election?, you conclude that at least in the 2012 cycle, at least at the national level, they couldn't buy that election. But why couldn't they defeat President Obama in his reelection bid? But what other political effects uh, came out of the 2012 election that we should be looking at? Well, you're absolutely right. In 2012, uh, a number of billionaires were very unhappy uh, with uh, President Obama. Uh, one individual, the late Harold Simmons of Dallas, said President Obama was the most dangerous man in America because Simmons felt Obama represented such a fundamental threat to the free enterprise system. But yet they lost. You know, Obama obviously was uh, reelected. But what is interesting is what has happened since then. Now, billionaires are smart business people. I mean, this is how they made uh, their money. And so what they did following the 2012 election was they understood that they failed. They went back. They analyzed what went wrong. You know, what was wrong with their messaging? Did they back the wrong candidates? And so they have now made some adjustments. And so, for example, as we're headed into the 2014 Senate race, races where, you know, control of the Senate is up for grabs at this point, billionaires are now going into some of the uh, key Senate races and really spending a lot of money attempting to elect the Republican. And what they learned was that 
In 2012, they kind of made abstract and analytical arguments about why Obama was bad for America and why they didn't like his policies. This year, they're running ads. It's kind of like the Harry and Louise ads that aired against the Clinton healthcare program in the 1990s. They're featuring couples sitting around the kitchen table and explaining the impact of Obamacare on them, why they think it's not working, why they think it's a bad policy. So they're really adapting their strategy. They're humanizing their message. They're trying to make it more compelling. And in fact, when you look at the pre-election prognostications, people think Republicans have a great shot at winning. So even though billionaires lost in 2012, they actually have a very good chance to be successful in 2014. And then that will open the door for the 2016 presidential election. Why is the U.S. Senate so important? The U.S. Senate is important from the standpoint of conservatives because they have Republicans in control of the House, but they want to get the Senate. The Senate is the body that approves uh, executive appointments, uh, so uh, that's obviously uh, very crucial. And Republicans believe that if they can get control of the House and Senate, Uh, They can basically keep Obama from doing things in the last two years of his term and therefore set up the GOP for a presidential victory in 2016, which they hope will give them a Republican president, a Republican House, and a Republican Senate. And you write something about uh, get a senator. What is that concept? I mean, a lot of people have complained about gridlock in American politics and the fact that Congress is dysfunctional and nothing gets done. And there obviously are a lot of explanations uh, uh, for that. But one of the things I point out in the book is I was talking with one wealthy individual and he explained this strategy called get a senator. And basically that strategy is that in the Senate, one senator can basically block an appointment or block consideration of a particular bill, either by filibustering or you can place a secret hold on that nomination, which basically keeps it from going forward. And so what this rich person was saying was, all you have to find is one friendly senator and you kind of invest in him or her, support the campaign, maybe support the favorite philanthropy of that individual. And then when something comes up that affects your business interests, you get that person to filibuster or place a hold, which uh, keeps the Senate from operating. And so, you know, it's one way in which wealth is really intruding into our political system in a very unhealthy way, that when you have one billionaire and one senator that can thwart majority will in the Senate. But it's not like that billionaire brings in bags of cash, like in some old 19th century cartoon and puts it on the senator's desk and says, vote my way. It's a lot more subtle than that, isn't it? Yeah, we're not seeing kind of the suitcases of uh, cash uh, that we often saw in America around uh, 1900, but it's more subtle, but yet equally effective and equally impactful on our political system that you can basically have rich people uh, essentially get to key senators and get them to uh, do things. For example, there's this case of Bill Ackman, who's a Wall Street uh, financier, who's been running this campaign against Herbalife. Like he thinks the company is basically a pyramid scheme and uh, not not a company that uh, is doing very well. He was able to convince uh, Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts to write a letter to the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Federal Trade Commission suggesting they need needed to investigate this uh, company. And so it's an example of how wealthy people can get to an individual senator and get them to intervene on what essentially is a dispute among business people. And what about at the state and local level? Are, are these billionaires, super wealthy people, 
active in politics and social policy at the subnational level? We're seeing a lot of activism at the state and local level. You know, a lot of states have a referendum process in which policy issues are put directly on the ballot. And in recent years, we've seen a lot of policies that are now being made at the state level. We've seen same-sex marriage go forward at the state level. Uh, marijuana legalization has appeared on the ballot and has been supported uh, by uh, voters. Obamacare is being contested at the state level. So we're now seeing billionaires really put a lot of uh, money uh, into uh, those types of campaigns. And again, if we have a good balance between liberal and conservative billionaires, if there's good media coverage, you know, if there's kind of a free, open and healthy debate over the issues, it's not a big problem. But when, once you get to the state level, we often are seeing situations where the money is very one-sided, that it's coming in just on one side, sometimes in secret so people aren't even aware of how they're being uh, affected. And so this raises a lot of problems for our political system. So beyond the um, kind of the day-to-day -day political system of, of elections and who's in office and ballot initiatives, can you talk about the, the effect of billionaires writ large on on governance, on the democracy, on the social fabric, if you will. In the book, I develop a concept called wealthification, which basically is talking about how this great wealth that uh, we've seen emerge in recent decades is affecting politics, philanthropy, and society in general. We're seeing that billionaires are using their money to try and gain special advantages. Uh, they often are doing so in secret, and so it raises uh, problems in terms of uh, where the money is coming from and how much people know about uh, their uh, government uh, process. The worry is that it's skewing our values in pretty uh, fundamental ways. Now, people in the United States say, well, you know, we have a rule of law, we still have educational opportunity, there's upward mobility. And so there are lots of things that should help balance uh, things out. But we're kind of close to the point because of Supreme Court rulings where there's so much big money coming into the election process as well as the government process that I think it represents some serious uh, threats to our system. We think about the wealth and we know that the, uh, the super wealthy have gained more of the wealth pie over the year. Some people might say, well, but the wealth pie isn't fixed. I mean, just because there's 1,600 or so billionaires in the world doesn't mean that other people, it's again, say Americans, can't themselves climb up the income ladder and get rich. There certainly are opportunities for people to advance. Certainly when I look at my own life as someone who started poor uh, but ended up uh, kind of in the middle of of uh, you know the leading uh, think tank uh, in uh, the United States, it clearly is still possible uh, for there to be upward mobility. But yet, when you look at the overall income statistics, someone who grows up in the uh, uh, lower 20% of income today only has a 6% chance of ending up in the top 20% income-wise. And so the problem is not wealth per se, it's how people are using it and whether wealthy people are still supporting policies that will enable social and economic opportunities for other people. I mean, that's my biggest concern, that sometimes because wealthy people don't want to pay more in taxes, that programs that promote economic opportunity are starved and it's harder for people to get the education they need to advance themselves, get the health care that they might need in order to make a contribution, and have the kinds of opportunities that I had when I was growing up. 
Brookings just published uh, what we call the Brookings Essay on this topic of social mobility by Richard Reeves. So I just would commend listeners to visit our site and look for Saving Horatio Alger. Another argument, though, people might make about the super wealthy is that they are the makers. They create businesses. They employ people. And then we get into that kind of makers versus takers argument. We saw that in the 2012 election. Can you talk about that perspective? I mean, certainly billionaires have made major economic and social contributions. I have a section of my book where I talk about how people built wealth, you know, where they got the ideas for their uh, businesses. And I present uh, several examples. And in all of these cases, it's actually very impressive that billionaires were very forward-looking in their ideas. They kind of looked at a business or an industry or a sector that was kind of uh, behind the curve, uh, not really uh, advancing much anymore, and figured out where they could have an opportunity to do things in a more efficient and more effective way or provide a new service uh, that uh, people uh, didn't uh, currently have. But, but I also suggest that it takes a village to make a fortune, that when you look at these cases, oftentimes uh, their businesses benefited from employees who came through the public education system. They benefited from public infrastructure investments. There certainly are major aspects of our tax code that allows people to build wealth and then keep it uh, once they have it. So we just need to make sure that our system stays in balance, that it's perfectly fine for people to get rich uh, out of their great ideas, but they need to help others basically do the same thing so that future generations, people from working class backgrounds have similar kinds of opportunities. I think Warren Buffett, the Oracle of Omaha, has made a similar argument that a lot of his wealth uh, is, is made possible because he was born into this society and not in some other society. What about, though, philanthropy? Um, we also we know that the wealthiest people um, give a lot to philanthropy. I think uh, Americans give more to philanthropic causes than most people in other countries. I mean, maybe the good work that is done by billionaires can perhaps offset some of this uh, negative impact that you see in, in politics. We are certainly seeing a number of billionaires do really good things with all of their money. You know, they're establishing foundations. Uh, they're working to improve education in America, healthcare in America. A number of them have global involvements and are trying to promote greater opportunity around the world. And I applaud them for all the things that they're doing. But we are also seeing kind of a situation where some billionaires are using their philanthropic endeavors to start to push particular policy issues or partisan issues. And sometimes through a foundation, you can do things in secret that you could not uh, do if you were kind of directly engaging in the election process itself. So I suggest we need to watch uh, that aspect and just make sure that there's reasonable transparency in the process. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned transparency. I know that's a, a, uh, one of the solutions you put forth in your book. Can you talk about what transparency means? How do we get to it? And what are some other remedies for some of the issues that you call attention to in the book? I mean, I didn't want to just write a book that pointed out 
problems. I wanted to think about solutions. You know, what are specific and concrete remedies to deal with some of these uh, issues? So, for example, in the election area, I do argue that we need greater transparency. Like when people are spending tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to influence the election process or drive the policy debate, we should know about that. You know, Americans uh, want to know not just what the message is, but who's the messenger behind uh, that uh, particular message. In the governing process, I suggest that in order to keep small numbers of people from manipulating Senate rules, that there shouldn't be secret holds on appointments. If somebody wants to stop an appointment and place a hold on it, they should do it publicly. They should not be allowed to do that in secret. We need reforms of the filibuster process to kind of keep small numbers of individuals from keeping a majority in the Senate from taking action. So I think there are lots of uh, things that would improve the transparency in, in the process and also improve the governance as well. What do you say to those who uh, oppose transparency on the grounds that disclosing large uh, political donations would expose those people to political harassment. Charles Koch wrote a column in the Wall Street Journal where he made this argument and other people have uh, made uh, this argument as well. In the United States, I've actually not seen examples of where because of transparency in the election process that someone was hurt or that there was some revenge taken upon them. So it seems like it's an argument in favor of secrecy that doesn't really stand up when you look at the actual evidence. You know, we don't have cases where because someone's contributions to a candidate was made public that they suffered as a result of that. Um, as we wind down here, what else would you want people to um, to get out of reading this book? I think what people need to be aware of is just how great wealth is having an impact on every aspect of society, government, business, universities, think tanks, even journalism. I mean, we've seen in the United States several examples of billionaires buying media outlets. Uh, Rupert Murdoch has the Wall Street Journal and Fox News. Michael Bloomberg bought uh, Business Week. Uh, Jeff Bezos uh, recently uh, purchased uh, the uh, Washington Post. So you just need to think about kind of what's going on in society. People need to be aware of this, and we need to think about what this type of political activism means for all the rest of us. And it strikes me as a, as a book that's very much about the rest of us. It's not just about billionaires. It's really about everybody. It's really about larger trends uh, that are taking place in society. I tried to write it in such a way that it would be readable and accessible. I mean, I do include facts and figures to kind of illustrate broader trends. But I also drew on personal experiences that I've had with billionaires. I did case studies of how they made their money and how they're using their money and uh, how wealth is affecting the election process to try and bring the message home. So I hope that people are able to read the book and benefit and learn from some of the things that we talked about. Well, thank you very much for your time, uh, Daryl. I really appreciate it. To learn more about Daryl and his book, visit brookings.edu slash billionaires. And now, Governance Studies Fellow John Hudak offers his thoughts on what is happening in Congress. As Congress comes back into session, we're entering a very unique moment in the uh, recent history of Congress, and that is one in which the parties are coming together, legislation is likely to be passed, and the requests from the White House are likely going to be approved without much 
a consternation by both the House and the Senate. In the coming uh, weeks, there are three major issues that Congress is facing. Uh, one is an authorization for the use of force in Iraq and Syria. The president has requested that Congress authorize military action in an effort to combat um, ISIS, both in Iraq and in Syria. And the uh, chairman of the Armed Services Committee, as well as the House leadership and, and Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, have suggested that while they were uncomfortable going along with the president's initial request, that being that the language be inserted into the continuing resolution, the, the upcoming budget reauthorization, short-term budget reauthorization, that they were fine with a standalone bill. And the authorization for the use of force will be taken up in the, the coming days uh, by the House and, and likely approved uh, quite quickly. The next item on Congress's agenda is a continuing resolution providing funding for the government likely through the end of the year. Uh, this has been a bill that comes up occasionally as the, as the Congress needs to continue funding, but it's one that has also met some fairly staunch op opposition at times leading last year um, to a, a short-term government shutdown. It appears, however, that this year uh, particularly in the shadow of midterm elections, this is a fight that Republicans in Congress do not want. And so the leadership is making every effort to make sure that the continuing resolution is passed, it's not held up by a filibuster or by other members, and that it's a clean uh, continuing resolution, that in it doesn't have many strings attached to it, such as repeals of ACA and, and other items. The final piece of legislation that's going to be taken up by the Congress in the coming weeks is the reauthorization of the Import-Export Bank. Uh, this is a source of uh, division in the Republican Party as the business wing wants reauthorization of the bank and Tea Party and other conservatives uh, do not want it reauthorized or they want it reauthorized for a very short period of time. It appears that the White House and the Congress have come to an agreement on extending reauthorization, and House leadership, as well as Senate leadership on both sides of the aisle, are willing to move this forward. And so we're entering, a, as I said, a very odd moment in which uh, the parties are coming together to pass some fairly major legislation that's going to have some serious impacts on uh, public policy, both domestically and internationally. You can get more analysis and commentary about Congress and government from the FixGov blog on our website. If you have any questions for Daryl West or any guests of the podcast, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu and subscribe to us on iTunes. Coming up on the Brookings Cafeteria, an interview with former Deputy U.S. Trade Representative Miriam Sapiro on U.S. trade policy. This podcast would not be possible without the crack production and editing skills of Zach Kulzer. The fabulous design of our logo by Jessica Pavone and the skilled website support provided by Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes or listen on brookings.edu.